Okay, so uh, welcome everyone to um, the Overeaters Anonymous Recovery from Relapse meeting. Today is the 17th of January, and our speaker is Claire E. Um, from Cornwall in the, UA, in the UK, who came to OA in 1993. And Claire, we would love to hear from you. Thank you so much, Noel. Um, my name's Claire Ian, recovered compulsive eater and bulimic. And um, yeah, as, as, as just said, I live in Cornwall in the UK. I'm currently in Florida, um, having had the privilege just to have been to the OA birthday party in Los Angeles, which um, is a miracle on many, many levels um, for somebody like me to be able to get out there and um, meet so many people, including my sponsor and my sponsor's sponsor, um, for the first time since the pandemic. And um, I really hope, really hope that I can channel some of that energy into this meeting as well, um, because I've taken so much from it. And I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful for my recovery. And it is such a miracle because, um, yeah, like you just said, I, um, I was in this fellowship when I was 17 years old. Um, and I needed it just as much then as I did now, but it, um, it hasn't been, my, my abstinence date is the 10th of October, 2017. So that's, that's quite, quite a long time of struggling in this program and recurrent relapses and recovery and periods of recovery. And um, funny enough, I was talking about that with someone at the weekend and just, you know, all that time wasn't wasted. All that time wasn't wasted. It took me every single bit of recovery and relapse to get to where I am now and my higher power um, uh, you know, I'm so blessed. I'm still here. I'm still here. Um, and if anyone is struggling with relapse, you know, I, I've been there many times. I've struggled with despondency. I've struggled with not believing that this is ever going to work for me. I've struggled with seeing people, you know, peers getting well. Um, I've struggled with the feeling of what the hell's wrong with me, um, that I'm somehow very defective, that I'm sicker than everybody else. Um, I've tried to get this program by osmosis. I really have by sticking around, by doing lots of meetings, by doing lots of calls, by doing all of those tools. Um, and I can only share my story really, um, you know, about what I do now and, and, and what's worked for me um, in the end. Um, so I'll qualify a little bit. As I said, I've been, <laughs> been an overeater since the moment I think I, I was born. I, I really do believe I was born with this illness. I was, um, I was just talking to somebody else actually about how um, I'm about how my mum gave me gin on a teaspoon to get me to go to sleep and she used to thicken my milk with rusk. So, <laughs> just, and, and you know, I'd love to say that's the reason I'm a compulsive eater. I don't believe that, but my goodness, that was, I was off, I was off out of the gates right from the start. And um, I do not remember a time that food was not more important to me than it seemed to be to everybody else. You know, it was always my comfort. Um, I remember starting school and feeling like I had fat legs when I was four or five years old. Um, and, um, you know, being a chubby kid, feeling like a chubby kid too. And um, yeah, you know, so I used to sneak food right from the beginning. I used to be dishonest around food right from the beginning. Um, and um, yeah. I, I, I stole food right from the beginning um so so that behavior for me you know it says in the doctor's opinion doesn't it to the, the you know the alcoholic that is their normal life that was always my normal life that's what I did it was always this cat and mouse game um I was in Weight Watchers by the time I was 11 um 
my mum used to take me to Weight Watchers and the shame around that, you know, the shame of this, this, um, I, I used to be so frightened that people at school would find out I was going to Weight Watchers. And, um, you know, that had no effect on me at all. I basically ate what I wanted to, except for Tuesdays where I starved myself all day, hoping that I might not have put on weight. <laughs> it was just, and Tuesdays after Weight Watchers was the free for all evening. It was, uh, it was like, you know, um, so that was, that was, you know, and, and um, I was, I'm five foot two, I'm quite petite. And I was 14 and a half stone by the time I was 13. So I think in American, that's, that's pushing 200 pounds. So I was, I was big. Um, I was big and um, I was constantly going on diets. Most of my diets lasted until about mid morning. Um, just couldn't, just couldn't. And um, yeah, I, I used to lie about my weight. I used to, I used to tell my housemistress that I was diabetic. I didn't even know what that was, but I thought it might explain why I was big. Um, and, um, you know, that sort of painful age of 13, 14, where a lot of kids were getting boyfriends and stuff. And um, uh, that was just alien to me. And um, I was at boarding school and, and, and you know, so it says in the OA 12 and 12, I hid, I hid, I drew the curtains and, and, and ate. And um, that's what I did. Um, and I, I, I was going up and up and up. Um, so I understand what it's like to be overweight, but that's kind of not my main story around food, because what I have, what happened to me was when I was 15, 16, I, um, I got accepted into a boys school for, uh, my sixth form. And, um, I decided that I was not going to start being the fat one. I'd had many unkind comments, much sort of, you know, digs and whatever else. And I didn't want to be the fat one. So I stopped eating <laughs> and that was about March of the year. And by the September when I started the school, I'd gone from being 14 and a half stone to 98 pounds, seven stone, bang on. Um, and I, I, I was rigid, absolutely rigid. I had 200 calories a day. I would not eat anymore. If my mum bought the wrong weight, watches yogurts, I wouldn't eat them. Um, I exercised after lights out. Um, so I sort of swung from one end to the other. Um, and, um, and I guess because I was still sort of overweight for quite a lot of that, people were so encouraging. It was, you know, this uh, sort of adulation. And, you know, as Bill W says in his story, I felt I'd like I'd arrived. I felt like I cracked it. I thought, all right, I've got it, I've got it now. Um, you know, it's like I'm, I've, I felt amazingly in control. Um, I was revising for my, my GCSEs at the time. I'm quite a workaholic. Um, I was a straight A student. I was doing all this exercise. I was losing this weight. I was I was on fire, and um, yeah, and that didn't last either. So um, it's uh, so yeah, and and what happened to me then was that one day I was getting, but in, as I was losing this weight and becoming increasingly skinny, people were putting quite a lot of pressure on me to eat, and I think you know, it, it, it definitely clocked up with my parents that there was a bit of a problem here, and this was not very normal. Um, and I started to find leaflets about eating disorders around the house and things like that. Um, and, um, and one Sunday, my parents had had some people over for Sunday lunch and all the leftovers were in the kitchen and they were in the dining room. And I went into the kitchen and started picking at some vegetables and very quickly completely lost the plot and was shoveling food in like an animal. And it seemed hugely logical to me just to go and stick my fingers down my throat. And that's what I did. And I was horrified the first time I did that. Um, but very quickly and within a couple of weeks, that was my normal life. Um, and that's my experience with this illness is every time I've crossed a line with something I've done around food, very, very quickly, that line becomes my normal. Um, and the line gets shifted, you know, the norms get shifted. Well, I'll never do that, you know? And, um, so I discovered this, <clears throat> this, this, you know, I could binge, I could eat whatever I wanted to make myself sick and stay thin. And it was like the crack cocaine of eating as far as I was concerned. Um, 
but I didn't feel I didn't like the feeling out of control and um you know very quickly I was out of control it it went from being once every couple of days to being once every day to being twice a day to being 10 times a day to being pretty much full-time it's what I did I ate and I vomited and um that was why I wound up in a treatment center when I was 17 um and I was also taking um drinking a lot I, I used to play the alcohol off against the food and I used to think the reason I drank was because I was so chaotic with my food and I used to think the reason <laughs> I blamed everything for my food I blame my mother mostly um my mum was boarding school my dad anybody anything I thought that was the reason I ate um and um, I tried to stop a few times. Um, I couldn't get more than 24 hours. I just couldn't not do it. Um, so, um, so I wound up in the treatment center when I was 17. And, you know, as I said, and I'm in a relapse meeting, so clearly it didn't, it didn't all end there. Um, I did put down drink at that stage. So I've been um, in AA and sober for that long. Um, so I've, I've just celebrated my, my 30th birthday in AA. Um, but the food was a much more protracted process. So, so, so the drink was out of the picture. And, um, and I did for some time, um, I, I sort of the, the story of treatment was that I was in this treatment center for, for nearly a year in the end, I went to a halfway house and, um, and I left that treatment center and, and went up to London's university. And um, for a while I was in food recovery. I, look back now and what I now call abstinence was way off what I was doing there but I never heard at that point I had not heard in all of that treatment anything about physical allergy and mental obsession it was essentially three more three normal meals a day um don't binge don't vomit and so my illness found its way around that it really did and those three meals a day were quite often sort of um three very sugary very <laughs> and I I found a, a particular indigestion um solution that you could drink which which essentially acted like a laxative but it wasn't a laxative I wasn't being sick um so there was all sorts of very odd behavior going on even though I had a sponsor who I didn't call very much and I was going to a lot of meetings um so 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 you know at, at the time I would have told you I was abstinent in recovery um but looking back now, I had no idea what I was dealing with. I had no idea what I was dealing with. Um, and the long and short of it was that my boyfriend at the time dumped me. And within a week of that, I was back in the food. I was back in the binging and vomiting. And that was the story for most of my 20s. So there was, I'd sit in AA meetings with pockets full of Maltesers. Um, and um, sorry, I don't know if I was supposed to mention foodstuffs, but, and, and, um, and I, 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 you know, and I'd sit there talking about the joys of recovery, how good it was to be sober while just eating my way through a meeting. Um, and at that point, I also smoked heavily as well. So there was constantly something going in my mouth. There was constantly something going in my mouth. Um, and um, occasionally I'd pitch up an away meeting. Um, honestly, I don't know whether it wasn't said or whether I didn't hear it, but I didn't hear much I wanted there. And I used to say, oh, there's not much in OA. I'll stick to the main fellowships, you know, put down what's killing you first. And there's a lot of, um, I don't know if anyone else relates to this, but, you know, there's a lot you know there's a lot of fellowships out there um for me I needed when I came back into OA I need I need food I need food identification it's very very easy to sit in other fellowships and bah, belittle the food you know it's like um put down what's killing you first everyone overeats you know all of this stuff was just I just was able to justify what I was doing um 
And um, I'll fast forward a bit because it's very tedious. It kind of goes on and on. I was just in the food and um, until my 30s. Um, and I had by that point met my now husband and I'd moved to Cornwall and um, had a baby. And, um, I'd, you know, that was the time I really tried to stop it. Binging and vomiting was when I was pregnant with my daughter and I wasn't able to. To my shame to this day, it's still something I periodically get. Um, yeah, it's been a, been, been a long process for giving myself that. Um, and he used to he used to find these bags of wrappers everywhere and um, and confront me about it. And I'd say, oh, that's from ages ago. And it got to even be to the point where he'd start reading best before dates to say, oh, that wasn't, you know, and, and it was it was just horrendous. Um, and um, I'd look at this little baby and I think, what what am I going to teach her about food? You know, what am I doing to her? Um, so that was what drove me back to OA at that point. And um, I had the very good fortune of going up to a, a, an OA convention in Birmingham. So this is 18 years ago now. Um, and I listened to Laurie, uh, um, a speaker, um, talk about the big book for a weekend. And um, it was mind blowing for me because obviously I'd been come from another fellowship, but I'd never heard somebody with long-term recovery talk about the, uh, the big book in relation to food. And it was the first time I had heard clearly that there was a physical aspect to this and there was a mental aspect to this. And it completely made sense to me. The other thing he said, um, the speaker, was that he binged on high fat foods with salt and high fat foods with sugar. And I had heard so much about sugar and cakes and biscuits and uh, I was going to go, you know, but I hadn't heard about other food substances, other allergies. And one of my main binge foods was high fat foods with salt. Um, and, um, and I felt I, I, it was, it was, it, it really went in gut level. Um, and um, I, uh, yeah, came back from that. I, I can like to say that was the end of it, but, but no, um, I sort of rode the wave of that for several months, actually, in terms of being, being quite abstinent and um, being on quite a high with OA and thinking I'd sort of found it, I'd discovered it. And then I was back in the food again and, um, you know, struggling in and out of relapse for, for quite a while. Um, and finally, sort of having, and there was another girl, funnily enough, there was another girl that was doing the same thing. She was in and out of relapse too. And then finally, this other girl came into a meeting and was abstinent and she got well. And again, hugely powerful to me. Um, you know, it's like this, this girl, because she was, as, you know, it's like Ebby, you know, and I think that's really important that Ebby was the one that 12-step Bill. And Bill knew Ebby. He knew that Ebby was as hopeless as he was. He knew that Ebby was a complete lunatic. And so Ebby getting well was very powerful. And it was the same for me. I knew this girl was the same as me. I knew she'd been in and out of food for years, just like me. And she got well. And, um, and I asked, you know, what are you doing? And she was going to um, a big book group and she had a big book sponsor and she was doing certain things every day. She was very, sort of had a very disciplined program. So I went to one of these meetings with her and um, I remember the entire meeting, I sat there with my brain going, oh, it's a bit extreme. They're like right-wing Nazi OA. I'm not sure I'm into this bridge to normal living guys, you know, sort of. And yet there was this voice in me that was saying that they're all well and you're not. Um, so it was one of those sort of moments where despite myself, there was a bit of an out-of-body experience that I walked up to a lady at the end of that and asked her to be my sponsor. And um, she took me through the steps. It was the first time I've been through the steps through the big book. Um, I was abstinent. Um, again, as I understood it at the time, it wouldn't be a, my definition of abstinence now. Um, but I had um, I had a level of recovery and that was the case for sort of seven or eight years. Um, 
so um, yeah, um, and I, I was involved in intergroup and I was doing service and I was sponsoring people. And I was going to a lot of meetings, but I hadn't put down those substances I now identify as my allergy. I was still trying to put my head in the tiger's mouth three times a day um, with, with various different food substances. I was still eating sugar. I was still eating other, other stuff that I now identify as my allergy um, substances. Um, so it was a bit of a white knuckle experience. And I had very, um, what I now call sort of quite elastic meals, you know, <laughs> quite variable in size, depending a little bit on how I felt. Um, so again, now I wouldn't call that abstinent behavior at the time I did. Um, I felt quite uncomfortable as well when people talked about abstinence. There was a lady that used to come and say, um, how long are you abstinent? What's your abstinence date? Things like that, which made me quite uncomfortable. And um, yeah, I used to use a lot of woolly phrases like, you know, I eat to be closer to my higher power. And I, you know, I kind of fudged around it a little bit. Um, and I had a sponsor um, who I was, who was wonderful. I loved her dearly. And um, I worshipped her actually she was my higher power I was very very people dependent and um I think on retrospect I hadn't really although I'd done the steps and although I was working the tools I hadn't really put much energy or effort into a higher a relationship with a higher power um and the long and short of it was that this sponsor decided she was going to leave the fellowship and within three months of her leaving the fellowship my home group closed down and both of those things were really devastating for me and um within about three months of that without a sponsor and without a home group um I was back in the food and there was an inevitability about it there really was it kind of felt like it was just a matter of time um and that proved to be the case and, and I was back in the food um and I um that last relapse I was going to be going back to OA every single week when I actually picked up the food I remember thinking I'll get back on it next week I'll ring someone and ask them to be my sponsor like a sponsor is going to be my magic bullet um and I was in that relapse for four years and um that relapse funny enough the food was probably better than it had been in previous times it wasn't quite as violent a binging um I had weeks in, even in between binges but the emotional and spiritual fallout of having had some recovery and then being back in the food and unable to get out of it was just horrendous um, the emotional um, fallout as well, I, I, you know, the, the, the sort of well-known stages of a spree that it talks about in the big book, you know, it's, you know, that irritable, restless discontent, the rage, the white knuckling, my irritation and my rage at my husband and my kids and the, the sort of the, the build up to it, um, followed by that relief, even the ease and comfort of knowing I was going to binge, you know, driving to the supermarket gave me a feeling of ease and comfort. I used to tell my husband I was going to OA meetings. I used to drive to the supermarket, buy food, go off to my mum's holiday home, eat it all, all evening, make myself sick, purge it out, go home, tell my husband how fantastic the meeting was. And then the next day I would be absolutely like that, that, that when you wake up and that, that there's like a split second where you go, yeah, I did it again. Yeah, I did it again. I did it again. Despondency and depression followed then by the rage again the rage and that would come out sideways and there'd be screaming arguments and I'd shout at my children and um and then I'd have a day or two possibly of not doing it and then that cycle would again again that emerging remorseful not going to do it again and then I'm back in it again and it, that cycle when you've had a bit of recovery in OA is particularly particularly heartbreaking I think I think you know 
it's really true to say that, you know, having a head full of OA and a belly full of food is a horrible, horrible place to be. And, um, and particularly when you know, and, I, and I, I'm the sort of relapser that doesn't go to meetings. I didn't want to see people. Um, I remember once going to a meeting and, and, um, and that was another thing I thought, you know, you're supposed to share it all out. So I go to a meeting and tell everyone how awful I felt. And this girl sat opposite me once, love her to bits now, but she sat there and she sat there with a massive smile on her face. She said, I've just had a grass attack because I'm not in the food. And I remember just thinking, well, I'm great. I'm really pleased that my misery and my relapse is fueling your gratitude. Good on you, you know. And I, I, I was, I was, I was just like, right, stuff that I'm not going to meetings. Um, so I didn't go to meetings. And um, but periodically, I would do, I would do some stuff. I'd phone some people. And one of the things I did um, was I rang a meeting that I knew um, existed in London. This is pre-pandemic, so there was no Zoom. And I knew that there was a lot of good recovery in this meeting. And I knew. There was a lot of people that weighed and measured. There was some scary stuff up there, um, but I also knew um, that there was some good recovery. And I rang the contact for the meeting um, and said, is there anyone in your group that's available to sponsor? And I didn't hear anything back. So I you know, forgot about it really. Um, <clears throat> and I, um, this is, I don't think this is my last binge, but this is my step one moment. I just remember so vividly that I'd done my standard thing of telling my husband I was off to an OA meeting. And I'd gone over to my mum's house with these bags of food. And I was sitting on the floor of my mum's house eating this food. I don't know why I always sat on the floor, but I did. Um, and, um, and I was crying while I was eating. Um, and, um, and I used to meet the sort of person that would make myself eat every single last morsel from every one of those bags because I knew if it was there the next day, I'd eat it then. Um, and um, my mouth was bleeding. I remember that really dry mouth. Um, and I said I was and I got quite shaky as well and um and I remember just crying out I can't do this anymore I just can't do this anymore please god if there, if there's anything out there please help me um and then I ate and binged and went home. <laughs> and um and I don't remember if it's the next day it is in my head it might not have been um but the next day I got a call from a woman who um who told me her story and asked me mine and we were on the phone for about an hour and it was like prickles up my back because her story and my story were very very similar but she was not doing it and she was I think she was about seven or eight years abstinent at the time and um and I remember her saying to me I'm going to throw you a lifeline I'll speak to you tomorrow again if you haven't picked up food and um and I saw that as I still see it as the olive branch that my higher power offered me you know, um, I saw it as this opportunity. I saw it as something that I would be very, very stupid if I didn't take, if I didn't give that a go. Um, and so I white knuckled my way through that 24 hours and, and I rang her the next day. And it was almost like an interview process. <laughs> I had about a week of ringing her before she finally agreed to sponsor me. I think she wanted to see that I was willing to go to any lengths. And by the end of that week, I was so willing to go to any lengths. I wanted what she had. And um, I decided um, that I would put aside everything. I'd put it in a pocket, in a box, everything I thought I knew. I didn't know that prayer at the time, but I did decide I'd just park it and I'd do as I was told. Um, and, um, and I did. I did as I was told. When she said, do this, I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I was taken through the 12 steps. Um, and I really wanted to say as well, I did not find getting abstinent easy. I um I was white knuckling my way through the first few weeks of that. I felt a massive grief 
for not being able to use food. I wanted it desperately. I was up to the fridge, I was looking in the fridge, then I was back down on the sofa making a call. Um, that's just my experience. I share that only because, because I think sometimes there's this thing that I got abstinent and everything was wonderful. And it wasn't, I got abstinent and I felt horrible for the first few months. I really did. And all of that stuff I've been eating on for years and years and years, just, you know, and I didn't have words for it. I couldn't even feel it properly. I just wanted my anesthetic. I used food as an anesthetic and I couldn't use food as an anesthetic anymore. And that was awful to start off with because I had nothing in its place. You know, I had nothing in its place, but I worked those tools and I worked those steps and God love her that she was the first sponsor I've ever had that gave me time. Um, and I'd spend an hour with her on the phone doing the step work and I would get off and I was like, Oh my God, that's so fantastic. Um, and that was the first time I'd really felt like that. I felt very enthused, very inspired. And, um, yeah, and I'd like to say that was, you know, the end of it. <laughs> but, um, but you know, the dishonesty around food snuck in, snuck in again. And, um, you know, this is one of the things I wanted really to share in this meeting. You know, what are the things, you know, what are the things I've identified um, as the things that led me to relapse? And one of my things is, you know, a real shift in my understanding of step one. Step one is, for me, not don't eat, don't eat, don't eat. That one for me is it is absolutely inevitable that I will get dishonest around food and I will eat if I am not spiritually fit. It's it's a total given. It's um, you know, that is as ingrained in me as it is. So one of my dishonesties was that I had fruit for my dinner, and that fruit very quickly became dried fruit, and that dried fruit very quickly became quite a lot of dried fruit. And you know, obviously, if you look at the side of a packet of dried fruit and see how much sugar there is. And so I had to fess up to this sponsor. That's what I was doing. And I got this five minutes left. Perfect. Thank you. And I was gutted. So one of my other lessons, and this is another thing, you know, to really, um, so I was, I was sacked and I had a few months without a sponsor looking for a sponsor very actively and very fearful um, because I didn't want to relapse. I knew I didn't want to go back where I was. So um, one of the things that I really have learned is that a sponsor is not my higher power. A sponsor will keep me abstinent. And um, I need to have integrity around my food. I need to be honest with the sponsor. Um, I am um, that three month period was was amazing for me. First off, because I found a group that I'm now a member of that has transformed my recovery, and um, and secondly because it really forced me to look for my higher power, to go searching for a higher power, um, and to rely on that higher power for that period of time that I was without a sponsor. Um, and to pray for the right person to be brought into my life. And I've had a few sponsors since then, actually. I've, um, I, I, um, have, I think three for various reasons, not bad reasons, just, just shifting from one to another. Um, one just didn't have time anymore. Um, and and, and yeah, my current sponsor, I just love her recovery. And um, yeah, so that's, that's my big lesson around dishonesty. And, you know, my, my current sponsor and I call it methadone eating now. All these little little dishonesties. Now, it's not like heroin. It's not the real thing. But my goodness, it'll keep me sick. And and you know, I can do that in an abstinent meal. I can methadone eat in a in an abstinent meal. So having integrity around my food is really important to me. And I am so fortunate. I have a sponsor now that I am so honest with. And learning to be honest with somebody on an ongoing basis. I was always pretty good at fessing up and then never hearing from me again. But to actually consistently be honest with somebody else um, is is mind-blowing 
I have moved towards weighing and measuring. That's just my truth. Because again, my dishonesty sneaks in, you know, volume was a thing for me. I've had to really look at behaviors, um, you know, bites, licks, tastes, fingers in the pan, um, volume, as I said, I was, I was, my vegetable portions were getting bigger and bigger and the, you know, the, the high, high, high volume, low calorie, that's, that's a thing for me. And again, my physical allergy can get triggered by being overfull. So I have to be careful about how much water I drink at a meal, etc. So I've learned this and I really wanted, you know, one of the things that I love on page, I think it's 30, I've only got my little big book with me, but, you know, we learned that we had to fully concede to our own and ourselves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery, the delusion that we're like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. I've had to learn in restaurants to really ask carefully what ingredients are in those things. I can't just leave my illness at the door when I go into a restaurant. I have to take this deadly seriously. And I do take my abstinence deadly seriously now. I do, I have said I've moved, it's evolved. The road has got narrower. And I've had more freedom. And that's what I, you know, I'll use my last two or three minutes to really hopefully convey this is that I have food neutrality now. That is a miracle in itself. And is that, if that's all I ever got from OA, that would, that would be enough for me. But on top of that, I have, I have such a life. I have just got the most wonderful relationship with the higher power now, which is, which is, which is again a miracle in itself, but but it evolves and it's it's changing and it gets deeper. I learn more. Um, another thing I think that led to many relapses was all the elephants in the room when I got abstinent. One of which for me is my sort of people pleasing codependency, my over busyness, my you know, a lot of other behaviours, um, and I've had to look at them. I've had to address them, and I have freedom from that too. So my life looks so different now. Externally, it's exactly the same same job same kids same husband same house but the way I am and the way I feel is just utterly you know it's like my roots do grip new soil and um you know I used to think abstinence was the end game here you know I used to think everything was about being abstinent and don't get me wrong abstinence for me is 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 you know one of the things I prioritize every day but it's the ticket in the door you know the, the money shot here is the spiritual awakening, you know, is, is being awake, is being present, is being able to be present. It's experiencing feelings and knowing that this too shall pass if it's uncomfortable. I'm, I'm here with my dad this week in Florida. I don't find this easy being with him. It's a difficult relationship. I have all sorts of funny feelings. I was on this massive high from this, this convention and I landed in Florida yesterday and had this ah, bong resentment around money and my brother. And I was like, immediately, oh, I don't want to have to deal with negative. I don't want to have to deal with negative. I don't want to feel bad. So I was on the phone doing step 10 and um, to a wonderful fellow and it shifted and it does, it passes, but I'm able to sit in that stuff now and know that's part of my, my rich human experience. Um, and it won't kill me. I don't need to eat food. I just need to sit with it, deal with it, with using, using what I've been taught in the program and get with my higher power how would my higher power have me be? How, how can I represent this miracle that's happened to me? You know, and I do see it as a miracle. I'm, I'm, um, I'm here still, you know, after all of this time, after all of those relapses, I am still here. So if you're struggling with relapse, you know, it, please don't leave, you know, that whole don't leave before the miracle happens. I think that's probably once you get abstinent as well, you know, because I've been abstinent and it's been painful. You know, I've been abstinent without emotional sobriety and it's really not a great place to be. 
And I, I guess, you know, I haven't left before that. It's been hard, you know, there's been some really hard lessons I've had to learn in recovery. Um, and there probably will be, you know what? I'm not done with it. <laughs> I've got this cracked by any shade of the imagination. But if it just keeps getting better, I just keep wanting it more and more. And there are so many beautiful humans in this, 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 this fellowship. I'm so lucky to have this whole dimension to my life that I wouldn't have if I wasn't in recovery. Um, I'm drying up now. I think I've just talked at you for long enough and um, apologies because I will have to go at 10 um, just, just shortly after to meet my dad. Um, but it's been a real privilege to share and um, yeah, I'll leave it there. Thank you.